Hi, I'm Sam. And I'm Jacob. Thanks for tuning in to our season nine, Fly Nally. If you haven't already, make sure that you're following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook by following at flyonthewallpod. And if you have any thoughts on the fly, you can shoot us an email at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. It's been a great semester here at Geopolitics. We've spoken to political organizers like NRCC staffer Adi Sathi, local leaders like Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin, and journalists like Julie Pace. Now to bring it all together, this week's guest has done it all. This week on the pod, we were joined by GU Politics fellow Tom Perez, who served as Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights and Secretary of Labor in the Obama administration, in addition to his more recent work as Chair of the DNC from 2017 to 2021. Thanks for keeping up with our flight path all season. And without further ado, here's our conversation with Geopolitics fellow Tom Perez. Tom Perez, thanks for joining us here on uh, Fly on the Wall. Um, so you began your career um, as a federal prosecutor in the Civil Rights Department. Um, and then you went on, of course, to uh, be President Obama's Assistant AG for Civil Rights. Um, clearly, you have a passion for uh, for the Justice Department. What drew you to civil rights in particular as an area of law? Well, civil rights is the unfinished business of America. And the laws we enforce embody the the promise of America, the promise of equal opportunity, whether it's in housing, employment, uh, so many different areas. And so I had the privilege of uh, serving as a career prosecutor, uh, starting in the Bush one administration, actually, and uh, working my way up and having the privilege in um, the Obama administration of leading the division. And again, uh, we, we look at George Floyd right now, we look at uh, so many of the challenges confronting our country, and they have their basic roots in civil rights and uh, the opportunity to enforce those laws and lead the division and make sure that we were living up to our promise of equal opportunity for all and equal justice under law was a privilege of a lifetime. And we currently have... Uh, a nominee, uh, Kristen Clark, who will be, when confirmed, the first woman and also uh, a, a remarkably qualified um, African-American woman who is, is someone who worked in the division. And I hope they confirm her fast because uh, she is impeccably qualified and the division needs that leadership. So when, when did you know that you wanted to be a civil rights lawyer? Was that before going to law school or was that sometime during the, the classes you were taking? Well, my family uh, came to this country from the Dominican Republic. They got kicked out. Uh, politics is what uprooted my family. They spoke out against an authoritarian leader uh, and had to leave. And this country gave our family opportunity my mother's uh, four of her five male siblings served as, with pride as legal immigrants in the U.S. Army during um, World War II. My father served in the U.S. Army uh, after the war and uh, as a legal immigrant and did so with pride. And our, our parents taught us that to whom much is given, much is expected, and you should always give back. So I, I suspect that my interest in doing civil rights work was a function of uh, really my the values that my parents imparted. They always said that if you want to get to heaven, you better have letters of reference from people living in the shadows. 
And uh, so that for me was uh, a real motivator. And I looked at uh, what do, who are the change agents around the world, around this country? And they tended to be disproportionately lawyers. So I went to law school, had the privilege of uh, learning from some great professors. And uh, this is uh, doing civil rights work and labor rights work has truly been a privilege of a lifetime. Yes. So um, one last question on your on your time with the DOJ. Uh, what was one of the most impactful civil rights cases that you tackled in your career? Oh, there's quite a few. Uh, had um, you know, when I was a career prosecutor, we uh, prosecuted a horrific hate crimes case in Texas involving three members of a white supremacist organization that went on a deadly racially motivated crime spree in Lubbock, targeting African American men. And within a half an hour, had shot three uh, at point blank range with a sawed-off shotgun. Miraculously, only one of the three um, was killed. Uh, but I remember that case uh, vividly. And uh, sitting at the kitchen table with the father of a victim who was shot to death because of the color of his skin, and trying to explain that to someone is uh, impossible because it's inexplicable and it's inexcusable. So uh, I had a privilege of doing a steady diet of those things. And then as the um, head of the division, uh, had the privilege of working on a host of different uh, cases that were widely impactful. Uh, we settled the two largest residential fair lending cases in the history of the Fair Housing Act. One involved Wells Fargo, one involved uh, Bank of America slash uh, Countrywide. Countrywide is a defunct mortgage lender who was the industry bottom feeder. They were they were predatory to their core, targeting black and brown people uh, with offers that sounded too good to be true because they were. And they transformed the American dream into the American nightmare. And using the tools that we had under the Fair Housing Act, we were able to make a lot of progress and we were able to settle those cases, the largest, I think to this day, residential fair lending settlements in the history of the Fair Housing Act. Uh, there was a terrible sheriff in uh, Maricopa County, Arizona, which is Metro Phoenix, named Joe Arpaio. And I was uh, one of the people who investigated him. And I'm really glad he's the former sheriff because he shouldn't ever have been able to carry a badge or carry a gun for that matter. And his lawlessness and disorder uh, approach to uh, policing was a stain on the department. And um, I'm proud of the fact that we were able to reform the department and the voters ultimately removed him. And that was a great thing. We did a lot of work on behalf of um, the LGBTQ community. And uh, I really am so proud of the fact that we have made such remarkable progress in access to opportunity for uh, our LGBT brothers and sisters. Uh, and finally, uh, we, we did a lot of work in um, helping religious minorities um, in a number of cases, um, uh, whether it was zoning cases or others. We want to make sure that uh, uh, no matter who you worship, you have the right to do so. And uh, we had a case in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, involving um, the Muslim community that was trying to build a mosque there, and they were encountering intense opposition, including an attempted arson of their building. And uh, we were down there helping them, making sure that they could indeed open. And I remember vividly going there. The 
uh, grand opening and watching uh, a remarkable diversity of faith leaders sit there and say, welcome. And uh, it was very, very impactful uh, to see that work. Uh, our uh, people with disabilities have hope because the Americans with Disabilities Act um, has given them hope and uh, also given them rights. And we aggressively enforce that. And, and I give you this broad array because civil rights is a broad array of opportunity. And that is why it's such an important job. And uh, I was, it was a real privilege of a lifetime to be able to do it. So after all that important work in the DOJ, um, your nomination for labor secretary faced opposition from the Republican party. Uh, could you speak a little about navigating those deeply partisan nomination debates that are fairly commonplace now? Yeah, there were Republicans who objected to my nomination to the Labor Department because they were afraid that I might actually enforce the labor laws. And they were afraid of that because they saw that when I was in the Civil Rights Division, I did a, a remarkably shocking thing in their eyes. I enforced the civil rights laws. That's what your job is, to enforce the laws, to enforce them even-handedly, and to enforce them aggressively. And I did that. I needed 60 votes uh, to get to cloture. And so I needed, I think, six, five or six Republicans on cloture, and I was able to get that. Uh, so I got the 60 vote margin, and I forgot what my vote was on uh, final confirmation. It was like 55 to 45 or something like that. Um, uh, and it took longer than it should have. And again, it took longer than it should have because they wanted a labor secretary who wouldn't enforce the laws. And that's not ever what Barack Obama was gonna appoint in there. So I appreciate the um, support that President Obama showed for me. And I appreciate the, um, uh, I, I appreciate that uh, there were a number of Republicans, by the way, including John McCain, who voted for me on cloture. And I remember meeting with him and uh, he and Senator Kennedy were very good friends. And I'm, I will always believe that uh, even though Senator Kennedy had passed away by the time of my nomination, he had been talking to Senator McCain. Yeah, so you mentioned um, working as labor secretary under President Obama. Um, what was that like? What was his What was his leadership style like uh, compared to other jobs and other bosses you've had in the past? Well, it's a privilege of a lifetime to work for President Obama, to become part of his economic team. Uh, he inherited the worst economic mess of our lifetime at the time. Uh, and uh, we were rebuilding opportunity, rebuilding the economy. We had a lot to do, and we wanted to rebuild it in every zip code and rebuild it through an equity lens. And he empowered us to do uh, what we needed to do. So we, uh, one of the first things we were able to accomplish was a passage enactment of a uh, regulation that uh, enabled roughly 2 million home health workers, mostly women of color, on food stamps to get a raise because we um, we interpreted the law correctly and um, ensured that they were eligible for minimum wage and overtime protections. Those are examples of, I mean, what, what you do at the labor department and what we were able to do at the justice department plainly and simply is help people at scale, people who are living in the shadows, 2 million home health workers, uh, getting a raise. They'd been working 60 hours a week and they were making like six bucks an hour, $350, $360, sub-minimum wage uh, because of how they were categorized under the um, 
law incorrectly. So we fixed that. Uh, we did other things to expand opportunity. Uh, we expanded apprenticeship. Um, apprenticeship is a ticket to the middle class. And when you give people that skills pathway, that's how they punch their ticket to the middle class. So it was a privilege to be involved with uh, Barack Obama and be on his team. Uh, we were, uh, the mantra was no drama Obama. And uh, we lived up to that because you know everybody kept their head down. We had intense debates about policy issues. And uh, when we came to uh, finality on what we were going to do, we were all behind it. And uh, and so it was truly a privilege of a lifetime. So moving to something a little more recent, uh, the 2020 Democratic primary cycle was the most crowded and competitive field ever. Uh, as DNC chair, what was it like overseeing this primary cycle? Uh, what challenges did you face and, and what do you think? what do you think you did well? What we did from the moment I got to the DNC is we understood that we had two jobs. We had to uh, build infrastructure and build trust. We had a crisis of confidence among many in the party. Uh, we had uh, people within the Democratic family who distrusted each other. We had to come together. And so what we did was, uh, as a result of the formation of the Unity Reform Commission, we created a table, and it was a big table, an inclusive table. And from that, uh, we passed a number of critical reforms, including reforming our primary and caucus process. Uh, our goals in doing that were to return power to the grassroots and to enhance participation. Um, caucuses, less people participate in caucuses. You know, if, you, if you're uh, working shift work, it's hard to get off that shift and go uh, and vote in a caucus or participate in a caucus. So uh, we were able, we had 14 caucus states in 2016. We had seven in 2020 because of the incentives we created. We uh, reduced dramatically the role of superdelegates in electing the nominee. Why? Again, because we wanted to return power to the grassroots. Now, there were some in the party who opposed that. I firmly believe it was the right thing to do. And I think it was really important um, and, and this gets to your question of the primary cycle. You know, in 2016, the day before the Iowa caucus, not one person had voted in America. And yet, you know, we had a candidate who had 700 delegates or 600 delegates to the convention already because of the way superdelegates were dealt with. In 2020, the day before the Iowa caucus, nobody had any delegates to the convention because of the rule changes we made. I think we created a level playing field. We articulated the rules of engagement of the primary long before we knew who the field was. So nobody could credibly claim that we were trying to reverse engineer the process on behalf of any one candidate or another. Uh, we created um, uh, you know, very transparent rules. And, and you know, the first two debates, you needed to be 1% in three or more polls. 1% is not exactly a high bar. Uh, and and that was by design because we wanted the American people to be able to kick the tires. We did it two nights. And one of the things we did that is often forgotten is when we had the 20 people, we literally drew straw or we, you know, we randomly selected the people for the two nights. You may recall the CNN debate. They, they actually had the selection process um, televised again. So nobody could claim. We were um, 
somehow trying to uh, have a kid's table or a JV and a varsity table. No, we weren't doing that. And I think all of those actions had the cumulative impact of ensuring that everyone had a fair shake. Nobody could credibly contend that um, they didn't. And, and to their credit, every single candidate understood that what the rules were and they came together at the end of the day. That's what I'm most proud of is our candidates uh, and our voters because our voters participated in record numbers and our candidates, every single one of them who didn't make it came together around Joe Biden. And uh, so I'm, I'm proud of what we were able to accomplish in a pretty remarkable and unprecedented set of circumstances. We haven't even talked about the pandemic and how that impacted things. And nonetheless, um, we were able to get through it and not only get through it, but in the middle of a pandemic, we have a November election that has the largest uh, turnout really in American history. People go back to 1900 and say, well, it's the largest since 1900. I don't buy that. It's the largest ever. In 1900, you know, women couldn't vote. <laughs> uh, African-Americans um, effectively uh, were having the right to vote uh, uh, made impossible. So um, this is truly remarkable what was accomplished in, in 2020. And I'm proud of the role that we were able to play. Yeah. So shifting more to looking at um, the, the, policy and, and direction of the Democratic Party. You know, ever since uh, the 2016 primary, there's been this narrative of a split between so-called moderates, um, Joe Manchin, Joe Biden to some extent, and, um, you know, so-called progressives, the more Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren um, type candidates. Um, in your experience, do you think that this dynamic is fair and, and accurate? Um, and how should the American people understand where the Democratic Party is going? I think the values of the Democratic Party are are the values, uh, frankly, of the vast majority of America. Uh, Democrats believe that um, everyone should have access to quality, affordable health care. Now, we have disagreements on how to get from where we are, which is about you know, 85 to 90 percent of the way up the mountain. We have disagreements on how to get from there to the summit of the mountain. But we have no disagreement on the healthcare, economic, and moral imperative of getting to the summit. Uh, the other side, on the other hand, wants to take us to the bottom of the mountain. So while we have uh, some disagreements on you know, certain tactics or certain ways to get to our broader goals, what I love about the Democratic Party, and all you got to do is look at the 2020 uh, 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 platform, I mean, climate change. We're not having debates about climate science. Uh, our, our platform is bold on what we need to do on the issue of climate change. It's bold on what we need to do on health care. It's bold on what we need to do to build an economy that works for everyone. Uh, and, and so when I hear about all these, uh, oh, my goodness, uh, there's all these rifts. Actually, the, the real rifts are in the Republican Party because they... I mean, they're having, there's a substantial subset of the Republican Party who believes it's okay to make up facts. Uh, I mean, the, the, I mean, we don't have that debate on our side. We actually believe in science. They believe in fiction. And that is really problematic. I, I wish we had a functioning, a well-functioning two-party system. The Democratic Party is doing well. We have work to do. We always will but we've made tremendous progress, but we don't have a dance partner right now. And uh, governance 
a lot more difficult. Uh, and I mean, look at this. Uh, people like uh, Matt Gates, the Republicans, you know, basically all the Republicans, except maybe a couple, they can't even muster the courage to call him out. Um, my goodness. You look at the recent uh, meeting the RNC had down in Florida, and you know, Donald Trump still has a stranglehold on the party. And, um, and, and that's bad for democracy because uh, uh, they, they, uh, they can't govern. And uh, they, they are at war with themselves. And I, uh, I don't think that's healthy. So to that point, you actually were an integral part of rebuilding the Democratic Party after losses in the 2016 election. Today, Republicans are debating how to proceed after President Trump lost the 2020 election. Uh, reflecting on your experience at the DNC, if you could give a piece of advice to the GOP right now, uh, what do you think it would be? Well, you've got you've to acknowledge truths. Number one, you lost the election fair and square. Stop lying about it. Uh, I mean, you, you, the laws that were just enacted by the Georgia legislature were enacted on a foundation of fiction. Uh, we need to make it harder for people to vote because uh, there were problems in the 2020 election. That is bogus. That is incorrect. That's the, those are the two most polite words I can think of. Uh, and yet they do that. So step one is you got to start acknowledging realities. Step two, you need to understand um, that wonderful um, image of America, e pluribus unum, out of many one. Our diversity is indeed our greatest strength. But for all too many in the Republican Party, their diversity is our diversity is what they fear. And you have nothing uh, to fear from an inclusive America where opportunity exists in every zip code for every person of every race, ethnicity, uh, et cetera. Uh, and you've got to acknowledge these realities. And you have to understand that um, it, it is really not helpful when your only goal is uh, I want to make Barack Obama a one-term president. So if Barack Obama says the sky is blue today, the sky is yellow. Uh, there was a period of time, I worked for Ted Kennedy, where there was genuine effort. I call it Venn diagrams. Where's that Venn diagram? Where's the overlap? And you could find it. We And, and you know, Ted Kennedy has a museum of accomplishments because he was able to find those areas of common ground. And You've got to remember that this, this uh, job is not about you. It's not about your status. It's about public service. And I think so many Republicans right now, they, they lack the courage to speak um, truth to power uh, about Matt Gates or about the 2020 election. And, and they, they need to um, understand that uh, they're, they're really doing a disservice to themselves and to America. So um, given uh, where, you know, Congress is right now, we're in the midst of a global pandemic and a national reckoning on race and policing, controversy around voting rights and truth itself. In your view, um, what are the greatest challenges uh, that the country is going to be facing in the next five years and what ought we be doing to tackle them? Well, I think we have, I mean, a, a big part of the challenges we've had as a nation are um, gerrymandering, partisan and racial and uh, dark money. It's just made, it's poisoned our democracy. We, we need to deal with that. The, the, a lot of the Republicans who have a sock in their mouth about Matt Gates 
The reason they do is if they spoke out against him, they fear that they're going to get a challenge from their right in the next primary. And that's because the districts have been drawn so um, uh, out of whack that that, that that is their only fear. Uh, people, sh- the voters should pick their legislators. Legislators should not pick their voters. And until we address the gerrymandering problem, we're going to continue to not really have an ability to uh, address all of the democracy reform. Dark money is, I mean, you, you see it every election. All these ads come in from shadowy organizations. Um, and that is, that's just uh, really, really uh, challenging uh, and, and, and really undemocratic. This notion that corporations are people too, wow. Um, I never under, I, that's not what I learned when I was in law school, but that's what the Supreme Court has said. So I think so much of the reforms that are needed, um, the reason why HR1, the first bill that was introduced by the Democrats was a bill about democracy reform is because we're going to be unable to do any of the other stuff unless we reform our democracy first. And that sound effect means that it's time for a quick lightning round. We are going to ask you three quick questions and hopefully get some quicker answers. So first, if you could travel back in time, what advice do you think you would have for your 18-year-old self? Uh, don't hesitate to take risk because the rewards are there. Okay, question two or three of the lightning round. Uh, many of our other uh, podcasts have taken up new hobbies during the COVID lockdowns from long walks to bread baking. What's been your favorite pandemic pastime? Oh, binge watching uh, shows on Netflix and uh, Apple TV and others uh, ranging from, you know, Narcos to... Uh, 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 what was the guy, uh, Joe, um, the soccer one in London, uh, who just won the um, Golden Globe, Jacob Sedaris or Jason Sedaris. Uh, so a lot of binge watching of uh, shows with my wife at night after we were all done with the day. All right. Last question. Besides Fly on the Wall, of course, uh, what do you like to listen to? Do you have favorite band, favorite type of music, favorite podcast? Um, well, I, uh, I still am a creature of my youth. And so, um, I still listen to the Rolling Stones. I still listen to, uh, uh, the who I still listen to some of, um, those classic bands. And, uh, and then I also like listening, uh, to, to jazz like Dizzy Gillespie and others. Excellent. Well, uh, Tom Perez, thank you so much for joining us on Fly on the Wall. It was a pleasure having you and a pleasure having you here at GU Politics as a fellow this semester. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to another episode of Fly on the Wall. We hope you enjoyed our season finale interview with Tom Perez. That's a wrap for season nine, but make sure you're following at Fly on the Wall pod on social media so you can stay up to date with our season 10 takeoff in the fall. The Flies would like to thank the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service for their continued support. And of course, all of our phenomenal guests on the pod. And a special shout out to our listeners who make all this worthwhile. Absolutely. We can't wait to fly with you in the fall as we continue to pull back the curtain on how politics really works.